trigger warnings, murder, parental emotional abuse, war crimes. Cue happy intro music, I guess. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Magic Winks Clubhouse, a podcast where two best friends get together every other week and recap the Italian Magical Girl series Winks Club. I'm Brendan, Fairy of the Surging Sea. And I'm Tess, Fairy of the Rolling Stones. Today we are watching uh, Fate the Winks Saga, Season 1, Episode 4, Some Wrecked Angel. Uh, This episode was released on January 22nd of 2021. It was directed by Hannah Quinn and written by Nicole R. Levy. The Yates, by the way, I found out apparently it's William Butler Yates, not uh, this poet empty. Yeats. <laughs> uh, the Yates poem being quoted is The Land of Heart's Desire. Uh, the full quote is... And it was some wrecked angel, blind from tears, who flattered Eden's heart with merry words. Uh, No listener questions this time, because we're trying to record fast today. Because Tess has work early tomorrow. There's a weird cut that I couldn't really fix, and I don't know what happened, so uh, uh, we're starting the recap now. An eerie wind blows outside Althea as Dowling, Harvey, and Silva convene in Dowling's office. She informs the other two professors that she found the nettle amalgam in Callum's desk. Harvey starts to info-dump about it before he is gently redirected, and he skips to the pertinent information. If someone tried to get past the trap on the Undercroft entrance, they would assume the nettle amalgam would help them defeat it, though they would be wrong. Callum hasn't been seen in days, and he is currently presumed missing after trying to breach the trap, Though the audience knows better. And I think this is what uh, Alanis Morissette describes as dramatic irony. <laughs> it's like rain on the murder day. We don't have day. the rights. <laughs> Dowling recasts the trap and closes the Undercroft door and explains that using a nettle amalgam is a really old-fashioned technique and not very common anymore. And... Since, again, Callum was not a fairy, he would have needed assistance to breach the door. Harvey produces a misting device that he explains will act like a magical form of fingerprinting and reveal what sort of magic was used to breach the door. As he trails it over the door, the mist condenses and reveals the shape of Callum's body where Beatrix vaporized him in the last episode. Harvey takes a sample of the mist for analysis, and the teachers settle with the realization that there's a murderer somewhere in the school. There's a quick cut to Beatrix, because the show just isn't subtle, who is stalking Bloom's Instagram page. Riven asks why she is obsessing over Bloom, and Beatrix says that Bloom being a changeling makes her the most interesting person at Althea. Riven asks if Beatrix is planning to single white female her, and she says to not be a creep. They then start making out, and then we cut to the opening. After the opening credits, in the courtyard, 
uh, Bloom is being gossiped about rather openly, and she's like 10 feet away, guys. Not cool. So she's got her breakfast with her, and she takes it to the administrative office where Aisha has taken over as the assistant during Callum's quote-unquote leave of absence. Uh, Bloom immediately starts digging at Aisha to see if Aisha has found anything in the about two hours that she's been at the desk. (laughs) And uh, Aisha says that of course she hasn't, and she only took the job in the first place because Bloom begged her to. And then Bloom teases her about, you know, also getting brownie points with Dowling. So Aisha lets Bloom know that the file she's found... Okay, she's been here for two days. Uh, the files that she has gotten to so far only seem to go as far back as Dowling's start as headmistress, and that the rest of the information has probably been archived for streamlining purposes. Uh, Bloom, uh, who is uh, a conspiracy theorist on YouTube... Suggests that maybe Dowling had it burned or shredded because she loves withholding information, even though that's incredibly counterproductive. Because what if somebody wants to get their master's degree and needs their transcripts? <laughs> um, Aisha promises to keep looking because she hasn't read everything that's in the office yet, and thanks Bloom for having breakfast with her, since it's also a convenient excuse for Bloom not to have to eat in the canteen. Musa slides in and asks if Bloom is still pretending she's not upset by all the gossip, and Bloom fires back and asks Musa if she's still pretending she isn't dating her roommate's brother. Which, of course, is Tara's cue to come in. But she missed the dating part and asks if they're talking about Stella pretending not to be upset that Queen Luna is coming to visit, because the Queen is going to be hosting some form of assembly. There's a there's a nice friend moment here where Bloom tells the others that they don't need to rearrange their plans around her, like she's some kind of mess. And then the other three look at each other because Bloom is currently some kind of mess. <laughs> and uh, Bloom not so subtly announces that she's going to go finish her paper before the assembly and does a leave. I have homework to do. Beep boop. And Musa looks at the other two and says, for the record, Bloom is not fine. <laughs> oh, I love this. Just casual. Yeah, no, she's she's not fine. Perks of a psychic friend. <laughs> we go to one of the walkways around the courtyard and Dane asks Beatrix if it's true what they say about changelings. She says that, yes, changelings were a way for angry fairies to get revenge on humans. And that they are very bad news. And that's why the three of them... Oh, but Riven is here. He's their boyfriend. He should be. That they all need to stay on Bloom's good side, or at least try to. At this point moment, I notice that Riven is very squinty. He is. His actor just has one of those faces. I don't know why it just dawned on me in episode four. Very squinty. Approximately two-thirds of the way there. <laughs> Dane notices Tara scuttling through the courtyard and is like, Hey, I gotta go. We'll see you at the assembly. After he leaves, Riven says he can't tell if it's more pathetic that Dane thinks Tara will forgive him after the video, or that he believed the crap Beatrix told him about the changeling. I'm starting to think they don't like Dane. <laughs> 
so it's 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 very complicated. This show is complicated. Beatrix says that she wasn't entirely lying because changelings can be dangerous. And Riven did everyone a favor by spilling the beans. Riven counters that technically it was Stella who spread it around school. And it's probably a good thing that the gossip can't be traced back to them. We do a pan out. Next scene. So... In front of the school, the royal escort rolls up the driveway, and it's two tactical SUVs and a Rolls Royce. As you do. Stella and Skye are waiting outside, and Skye reassures Stella that the queen is only going to be there for half a day. This turns out to be a lie. Yeah. And uh, Stella seems... It's very clever how they frame this, because it seems Stella's initial objection is that everyone's going to be basically worshiping the ground her mother walks on and that the assembly about the burned ones is an excuse for luna to check on her progress because she is not at all aware of how self-centered she can be and when sky asks if stella told the rest of the winks that she would need you know some space and maybe like a bit of chill time uh, Stella says that she does not need them. She only needs Sky because once again, she's an emotional parasite in a codependent relationship. And then Sky does a leave after reassuring Stella <laughs> that he is only a text message away. I did really like the progress thing because it has come up later and I'm like, oh, it's checking up on studies. <gasps> oh. Yeah, it's a, again, it's a really good double meaning until you get the full context. I still have not seen the rest of this series. I don't know the full picture yet, and that's great. So the rolls comes to a stop in right in front of Stella, and the driver opens the door and outsteps Queen Luna, who is um, very glamorous, kind of your average middle-aged British woman. Uh, she has cheekbones that could kill a man. Oh, yeah. And a really chic, like, so it's not a glitter jacket and it's not a bedazzled jacket, but it's somewhere in the middle. It's shimmery. very, sh it's shimmery, but it's not like drag shimmery. It's, 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 it looks like something you could buy at Dress Barn, but I know it's more expensive than that. Ah. Uh, and uh, Stella gives her mother a smile that basically says, I do not want to be here. So now we're at the greenhouse. Sam is studying at one table and Tara is at another. By the way, I did not know this was Sam. I just thought this was a class. Until, oh wait, that's Sam. He's a little generic looking. He is, but in a really cute way. He has a distinctive nose. That's the cute way. And Harvey is off to the side working on a project. I have decided to step off my Professor Harvey pedestal because it just takes too much time. Mm. It's three extra syllables. Tara asks if he needs any help because she likes helping. And he lets her know that it's a very special project that he needs to handle on his own. He then tells her that she can strip hydrangea roots if she wants to help in general. But she says she needs to get back to her homework. Sam spins around on a stool and says that her homework seems pretty finished to him. But the potential sibling argument is interrupted by the knock on the door. It's Dane! Dane 
starts to ask if he and Tara can talk, but he's cut off by Sam and Harvey giving him a look that could kill and probably has in the past. Tara steps in and thanks them for the anger on her behalf, but says she can handle her own fights. And they back down, but are still ready to light Dane on fire. Dane wants to apologize, since Tara has been nothing but great to him, and she agrees. She has been nothing but good to him, because she's a good person. She thinks Dane probably is too, but doesn't think she cares to find out anymore, and advises him to be careful of who he trusts before she slams the door in his face. And at this moment, I note that Tara is very proud of herself for standing up for herself, and that Sam wants to protect her. Like, it's one of those, like, sibling things. You wouldn't know because you don't like your brother. <laughs> I will admit this is not the relationship that Andrew and I have. If Aiden wanted to beat the boss out of someone on my behalf, I'd be like, hey, my brother likes me. Anyway, Sam still wants to punch Dane in the face. And rightfully so. And Harvey gets a text that the queen has arrived. He excuses himself. Sam goes back to his homework, and Tara starts to snoop on the notes he was using to make his special project. Uh, we go right to Sylvan Harvey escorting the Queen and uh, Dowling into the admin office, and Aisha hops up to her feet since there's little royal, literal royalty in the room, and uh, offers her assistance. We. Don't know if Aisha is also royalty in this continuity. I assume it would have been brought up by this point if she was. It's incredibly unclear. I'm going to say probably not because it would have come up in this interaction. I, I just feel like the princess of another nation meeting the queen. It would have... You, you know what I mean? It would have been mentioned. Right. Uh, I, Luna gently refuses the offer of assistance because she claims to be low maintenance <laughs> and Dowling hands her coat to Aisha before, before the professors and the queen, uh, shuffle on into Dowling's office. When Aisha hangs up Dowling's coat, a stack of papers on the filing cabinet falls to the floor. And if I had a dime every time that happened, I would never need to work again. <laughs> Uh, Aisha bends down to pick it up and she notices that there's a little metal ring caught on the lip of the filing cabinet drawer. So she picks it up and she tries to like put it back on the filing cabinet since it kind of looks like it's part of the lock. But it doesn't fit. So she holds it up to get a better look at it. And it starts talking. It starts giving her the conversation that is going on in Dowling's office where Queen Luna is asking if Dowling has any theories on how Callum died in her office. A magical ball bearing is what this ring looks like. We cut to Bloom expressing shock that Callum is dead since the official explanation is that Callum left due to a family emergency. Bloom continues her cynical stance that Dowling keeps lying and asks if Aisha is certain that the files from before Dowling's tenure as headmistress haven't been destroyed. 
Bloom. Think for 10 seconds and you'll realize why that is a ridiculous thought. Remember that abandoned warehouse you were in? I'm sure there's paperwork in there. Anyway, Aisha is certain that they're just archived somewhere because of how much Dowling seems to love paper records. To the point that Dowling looked at her like she might have three heads when Aisha offered to start digitizing things. Which is better for the environment, by the way. To be fair, though, uh, this school probably has thousands of years of records. I mean, even if you just do it since Dowling's been headmistress, that that's a good start. And get a system set up for future headmasters. But I digress. To be fair, Tangible I don't p- think someone, I don't think someone from two thousand years ago is going to want to go back to school. Tangible paperwork is a burden on the planet. Maybe not in a world where you can just, you know, magically duplicate things. You can literally just make trees grow so you can harvest them for paper, but... Bloom speculates that they might be in the East Wing and makes to go to the East Wing. And when Aisha tries to stop her because the assembly is mandatory... Bloom tells Aisha that she can't be around so many people who are going to look at her like she's a freak and keep making things up about her when she doesn't know the truth herself. Aisha caves and says she'll cover, by the way, with a bad migraine, hardly can stand up, good cover, migraines fucking suck, if only Beatrix didn't see you. And Bloom goes off to the East Wing. Oh yeah, Beatrix is watching from a balcony because... She's creepy like that. She's a villain. She has to loom ominously. (laughs) Which is hard because she's kind of (laughs) short. So we do an establishing shot of Althea to show that the weather is uh, pretty nasty. There's a thunderstorm starting up. And we head inside to Bloom sneaking through the east wing in a scene that is lit in dark blue. It's kind of hard to see what's going on if you don't have your screen brightness all the way up. Uh, she gets jump-scared by Skye, who asks what she's doing down there. And before Bloom can answer, we cut to Beatrix walking through the yard outside of the East Wing. And she's wearing a really cute coat in this scene. I love it. It's For the really rest of the nice. episode, even. Uh, Riffin pops up next to her and asks where they're going. Beatrix calls him Clingy, and then tells them that a mandatory assembly is a mandatory ditch. Oh, also, at the end, it just zooms in on a sign that says, This is a restricted area. In the courtyard, Queen Luna walks along a raised portion of the floor. The lighting is gloomy and blue due to the storm, but Luna raises a hand and the lighting changes to a soft, warm orange focused on her. <laughs> so, what it, to me, it looks like, first of all, this is a set. It has been confirmed. This is not a location shoot. Just the exteriors are. Because obviously, I can't believe I thought this might be actually inside that building. And two, um, so the way it works is there is, it's a recessed floor, basically, for the courtyard. So it, there are steps up to the main hallways on either side. And I guess they've cleared one out so Luna can use it as a stage. Also, there is a hijabi student in here. Oh, that's nice. Very cute. Also, in the novelization of this scene, apparently Luna fiddles with the lighting a little bit more. 
Um, because you have to actually be able to see things for a TV show, they can't make it too dark in there. But apparently, because of the thunderstorm, it was like super dark and like blue. And then Luna changes the lighting to like pink and makes it look like a sunny day and goes, no, that's too intense. And then she does the soft focus orange lighting ah. to show off how much she can control the visible light spectrum. And hey, ah. it makes light magic seem not as much of a dud of a power compared to the other elements. Oh, of course. In the crowd, Aisha whispers to Tara that she can't believe that Luna is Stella's mother. Tara agrees and bets that having such a powerful, humble, and beloved mother probably drives Stella mad. Knowing what we know later in the episode. Yikes. Luna starts the assembly and explains that she's here to talk to them about the burned ones. Like, it feels like the queen shouldn't be coming out to do this if it's this dangerous. Yeah, but this is one of those TV things where you just kind of got to go with it. Also, we don't have an auditorium, so most of you need to stand. As Luna is talking, Sam and Musa exchange some flirty texts, which Tara interrupts to ask Musa to read Stella and see if she's miserable, which Tara is taking no attempts to hide how delayed she'd be if it were true, again, knowing what we know later. Musa, who manages to hide her sexting, asks Tara to wait. Tara, please wait. I'm trying to be horny right now. <laughs> I'm being horny with your brother. Shut the fuck up! As Dowling is walking the aisles, presumably to make sure no one is on their phones. Are you sexting during the assembly, young lady? <laughs> Musa does get an unintentional ping off of Dowling and starts to realize that this assembly isn't just about the burned ones. So this next portion of the episode is pretty much cutting back and forth between the assembly and the archives. So in the archives, Sky asks what year they're looking for, and Bloom answers that she was born in 2004. Ooh, ah, my bones. Children! First of all, I, I do think that's kind of cute in that it means that it's, you know, as old as the show itself. Second, if Bloom was born in 2004, this show takes place in the year 2020. Oh no, December of 20. She was born in December of 2004, so she it might be 2019. I'm not sure. Or 2021. We didn't even. go to school. We didn't go to school for math. Uh, and third, the original Bloom being 2004, being 16 in the year 2004. May, that's not right. <laughs> I did that wrong. Are are you mathing incorrectly? Yes, I accidentally put 2204. The original Bloom being 16 in 2004 means she would have been born in 1988. Anyhow. Which also feels like too old, so I don't know what to expect anymore. No, that's just how time works. I know, linear time. Time is an illusion and nothing is real. Anyway, continue. Sky jokes that they probably won't be finding any pictures of pregnant students down here. And Bloom requests that if he is going to mock her, to have the decency to do it behind her back like everybody else does. He reassures her that nobody is judging her, which seems false because teenagers are the most judgmental human beings on the planet. Children are vicious. Have you met a teenager? 
Bloom admits it's hard to keep her cool when people are like whispering while she's two feet away. That's when Sky finds a photo that has Rosalind in it, but also his father and the other three main faculty members. He's just as surprised as Bloom is because he knew that his father's commanding officer was a woman, which, awesome, I guess the other world military is far more progressive than our own. And uh, this is a tender moment where Bloom tells Sky that he looks like his dad, and they talk about their family situations. Uh, Bloom asks if it's weird for Sky to feel like other people know his father better than he does, and Sky admits that it probably isn't as bad as not knowing who he is at all. This emotional moment gets interrupted by Beatrix and Riven, and Beatrix quips that it seems like... She and Riven aren't the only ones up to no good today. Knock, knock. Who's up to nonsense? Okay, so we're back at the assembly. And Musa explains that what she picked up from Dowling was anxiety. Fucking mood. <laughs> Aisha rationalizes that it could be because her assistant died, but Musa says that Silva is also on high alert. Like there could be a threat anywhere in the room. Tara asks about her dad, and Musa says that Harvey is feeling an intense amount of fear. Tara then lets Musa and Aisha know about Harvey's special project earlier in the day. He made something with the stones that fill the vessel, which can track magic. And now Dowling is holding it. Luna informs the assembled students that there are at least five, parentheses five, burned ones being tracked throughout Solaria, which means that the threat is not only serious, but growing, and it is time for all of them to start paying attention. In the archives, Riven asks if Bloom and Sky have seriously been poking around in this dusty garbage, and Beatrix tells <laughs> him that people who think history is garbage are garbage. Brendan, no, it's rubbish. I'm gonna make fun of this show as much as I can. Well, yeah, it's getting intense. Beatrix suggests that Bloom and Sky snuck away to fool around. Which Riven doubts because that would make Sky interesting. Bloom confirms that is not the case, but at least they were alone before these two jokers showed up. And Beatrix jabs them and says that having an emotional affair is even worse. She's not wrong. Our unlikely adventuring party comes across a locked door, and Sky informs them that Silva is the only one with a key that will get them farther into the archives. Bloom asks how they'll get the key. Sky says they won't, because I guess he's uncomfortable now that we've moved past trespassing and reached the breaking and entering portion of the dungeon crawl. We've gone from a misdemeanor to a full-on felony. No, I still think this is a misdemeanor breaking and entering. Bloom tries pointing out that the information they need is probably just behind that door, and Sky refuses. Uh, Riven makes a crack about how the more Sky says no, the more Bloom will pursue, so sh Sky should give in. And Beatrix asks Riven if they need to have a talk about consent, which is actually a good joke. <laughs> Bloom then asks what uh, Beatrix and Riven were doing in the archives anyway, and Beatrix says that they are on Bloom's side. Uh, Bloom, uh, Bloom 
says that she doesn't need help from somebody who would post a video mocking one of her friends, and Beatrix gives the flimsiest excuse that she technically didn't say anything about Tara and that she was a bystander in the whole thing. I was just filming the whole thing and posted it on my Insta. Yeah, I just filmed it and posted it on Insta and made no effort to stop it at all, but trust me, I'm on your side. And also kind of sent it to her, maybe, but... Eh. Uh, Then she throws Riven under the bus and tells Bloom that if she wants to be mad at anyone, she should be mad at Riven since he's the one who told everyone that she's a changeling. Sky asks if this is true. Uh, Riven says he doesn't want to hear any lectures. And uh, does a leave. (laughs) Bloom tries to tell Sky it's okay. Sky points out that it's absolutely not okay. And he goes to confront Riven, which leaves Bloom and Beatrix alone. This feels to me like, and again, this is exactly what's going on. Beatrix knows exactly what's going on. Yeah, and she's um, kind of throwing chess pieces at the board to make sure that she gets Bloom alone. That's how you play that game, right? I throw my horsey at you, I win. (laughs) It's time for a bro fight. Kind of. Up top. An emotional bro fight. I get so bro-emotional, baby. Every time I think of you. Up top, Sky asks if Riven is really running away. And Riven turns around and says he's ready to hear about what an asshole he's been. Sky tells Riven that he's always been a douche, but ever since he started seeing Beatrix, it's gotten completely out of hand. Riven counters that Beatrix is the only person at school who likes Riven as he is. A douchebag? Yeah. There's... Okay. Here's a big problem with Riven. We do not have any context for why he is the way he is. All we know is that apparently last year he was kind of a sweet kid and then something happened and now he's a jackass. I do like this Riven more than cartoon Riven because this is a more layered level of douchebaggery. But it's still not explained. Yeah, he feels like a much more realistic version of a teen who's taken a level in jerk ass. I think I think he's consistently comparing himself to Sky, and projecting. And that's the problem. Riven is projecting that uh, he believes Sky thinks he is better than Riven, but no, that's what Riven thinks. That Sky is better than him. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Riven then tries turning the conversation around on Sky. Since Sky has a girlfriend and tells him that he shouldn't be creeping around with first years while he has Stella strung along. It's it, it's less that Sky is stringing Stella along more than Stella is the albatross around his neck. But I digress. Sky tries to tell him that that's not what's happening, but Riven lets him know that that's what everyone sees, including Stella, which is probably why Stella told him Bloom was a changeling in the first place. Sky looks pretty stunned by this revelation, and Riven figuratively storms off as the literal storm picks up overhead. We return to the assembly, which is now over, and Musa picks up that whatever is bothering the professors has not been solved. 
Tara doesn't want to believe that her dad has an ulterior motive, but Musa points out that people tend to have way more going on than you'd assume, especially if they're a parent. She then uh, sees Sam across the room and excuses herself to go spend some time with him. And that means that they are going to make out against a wall. And Musa has more going on than Tara would assume. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't I actually didn't pick up on that. That's pretty good, too. So uh, they do a make out against a wall out of sight of Tara. And he brings up the fact that he would really like to be able to kiss her in public. But Musa likes having something that's just for them. It's not just Tara that she's worried about. She also doesn't want to have to deal with the reactions from the entire student body. Sam knows that she has to feel the reactions, but when he asks if she has to care, she brushes it off. They They come to an agreement that being an empath sucks, and dating one isn't a walk in the park either, but for what they have, it's worth it. I know you have to feel that you broke your leg, but do you have to care? I mean, Sam is just more emotionally mature than Musa. That's all this is. A lot of people are more emotionally mature than Musa. Well, of course Musa is emotionally, uh, well, probably more emotionally her age, let's be honest. But when you are constantly inundated by the emotions of everyone around you, that's going to do some funky things with your own emotional development. She's feeling the emotions of an entire school. In the archives, Beatrix asks Bloom if she thinks Rosalind was the one who put her in the first world and proceeds to sing Rosalind's praises. When Bloom remembers that Beatrix said she didn't know who Rosalind was at the party, Beatrix replies that since Bloom was being cagey, she was being cagey too. Bloom has only been finding dead ends, besides the locked door. And Beatrix points out that Bloom does, in fact, have fire powers. Bloom's more worried that she'd burn down the school in an attempt to get past the door, and Beatrix makes a mental note about Bloom's difficulty with control. Sky texts Bloom and asks if she's still down there, but she lies and says she's dealing with sweet drama. When Bloom offers to fry the hinges off the door... Beatrix reveals she's just picked the lock the old-fashioned way with her tongue. And together they enter the locked room. What they find inside is a complete war room. And Beatrix uses her lightning to power up the magical map table in the center of the room. This thing's pretty cool. Yeah, I really like it, actually. Um, It reminds me a lot of... um. You're probably not going to get this reference because I know you haven't played these games. But it's a lot like the uh, map table from Fable 3, where it showed like the entirety of like the playable part of the game. And that's how you could fast travel and stuff. But this like it starts as a model of Alfia, but then it like zooms out and shows that Alfia is basically in the middle of like a it, it's almost like Alfia is in the caldera of a volcano. <laughs> Which, hey, maybe it is. (laughs) I don't know how Ireland works. Alright, kids, the volcano's about to blow. We need you to push the school. (laughs) Why don't we take Alfia and push it over there? Stella's mom is a huge cuss. She has good hair, though. So, as a heads-up, listeners, this is the emotional abuse scene. 
So um, if you would like to skip past that, please skip to time code 3850. We're hoping you've watched it, though. This was a really powerful scene. This is pretty crucial to understanding Stella and her character development. So we go to Dowling's office and Stella is using her powers while Dowling instructs her. And Dowling reminds her that Stella controls the light, not the other way around. Stella makes a rainbow between her hands, and Luna scoffs at it because a rainbow is hardly a display of the power of light magic. Dowling reminds Luna that rehabilitating magic is a process that takes time, but Luna didn't send Stella back to Althea after last term's incident for a process she wanted to fix. Er, Dowling poses a rebuttal that Stella only needs rehabilitation because her training prior to Althea was entirely results-focused, not based on any actual teaching theory. And Luna is not pleased by this. Dowling promises Stella will move on to stronger magic once she's ready, but Luna asks if she needs to recite the list of threats facing Solaria. Stella tries to speak up, but Luna tells her not to speak while she is speaking. Uh, Luna puts forth the thought that Solaria is the strongest realm of the Otherworld, and as its crown princess, Stella is an extension of that strength. Stella tries to defend Dowling again, and Luna gets much more aggressive when she tells Stella not to speak while she is speaking. Stella then says that she blinded a burned one last episode, and Dowling notes that it was a very skilled and precise application of her powers, and Luna scoffs again and asks if Stella thinks that is power. Then Luna's eyes glow, and the office melts away, and Stella is alone in a dark forest with vicious animal noises. Stella asks her to stop, and when she opens her eyes, she's back in Dowling's office. Luna is now right in her space, and informs her that controlling light is controlling what people see, and that despite what others may say, appearance is everything. And Dowling would know, given Luna's efforts to help Dowling preserve the school's reputation. Uh, Stella is dismissed. And as Stella passes Aisha's desk, Aisha asks if she's okay. Stella is uh, very visibly shaken, tells her she's fine. And once she leaves, Aisha pulls out the eavesdropping ring to listen in. Uh, this confirms that Luna's training of Stella was entirely fear-based, which is why Stella believes so strongly in the power of negative emotion to fuel magic. And Luna also threatens Dowling that she can be replaced as Alfia's headmistress on the Queen's whim. I f***ing hate this woman! She's a very effective antagonist. It is so good. She is a very real kind of evil. Also, oh, man. Uh, character stuff aside, light magic also being able to do illusions... That's sweet. I'm just... Like, re like remembering what I was watching earlier, and again, because this has been well over a month. Nearly three months. This is making me want to go back and watch the series again. <laughs> because this is... Huh, you know? It's, it's that crucial, because if you watch... 
you watch again from the beginning, you see exactly why Stella acts the way she does. The problem is that fear is not reliable. No, it's a terrible motivator. There is such a thing as being too afraid. Which we saw last episode, I believe, when they went to get Stella's ring back and Stella couldn't use her powers because she was too scared. Oh, this is good. We have a brief aside of Sky beating the crap out of a kickboxing dummy. When he gets a text from Stella, who understandably needs an outlet after what's just happened, but he is stopped from responding by Silva, who walks by and demands some kind of an update. In the greenhouse! Harvey is visibly stressed that the assembly didn't return any results. And Tara enters to ask if his project has gone wrong. Real quick, Tara's little raincoat is adorable. Yes, everyone has very good outfits this episode. He brushes her off politely, and then slightly loses his temper and raises his voice. He immediately apologizes, and when Tara asks- Because he's a good parent. Good parent. Very good parent. I love him so much. I don't want him to be my dad, because I love my dad, but good dad. And when Tara asks if he'd tell her if something was going on- He lies to her face and says that of course he would. Tara immediately takes us to Musa and Aisha and asks why all the professors aren't being straightforward with them. Aisha tries to reassure her that her father is only doing what he thinks is right. All of them are, because they're the adults and they, quote unquote, need to know what to do. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And Tara counters that he should at least have the decency to not lie to her face. We're dealing with a really, really common theme here of adults treating teenagers as small children in an effort to protect them. And, of course, we reach the standard conclusion that it's never a good idea to do this because at 16, you're old enough to both know that you're being patronized and resent the person doing it. It's so fascinating how many problems could be fixed if parents would actually just talk to their children like they were reasonable human beings. It's just... Once someone gets to a high school age, you need to start being able to talk to them like they are going to be adults soon. Because guess what? They're going to be adults soon. We're both 27, we should move on. (laughs) Aisha reconfirms that Harvey made an item with vessel stones, which detect and track magic, and presumably this can go to an individual level. So the three come up with the proper conclusion that the professors think a fairy murdered Callum, which would have likely been at the mandatory school-wide assembly, and the fact that they didn't get a result is what's causing their current stress. That's when Skye comes into the suite and asks if Bloom is there. And when asked if Silva told him what was going on at the assembly, he seems confused. Tara spells out the whodunit plotline, <laughs> and that whoever killed Callum wasn't at the assembly. Sky puts the pieces together. It's Beatrix. I thought it was Red Herring. <gasps> it's never Red Herring until the one episode that Fred can't say it's Red Herring. This, by the way, is a cue for us to go back to the war room. And the camera focuses on Beatrix while she and Bloom are doing their archives trawl. 
Apparently, Rosalind was barely at the school in 2004, which Beatrix confirms is because she was leading the crusade against the Burned One. Uh, Bloom specifies that <laughs> it's when Beatrix finds out that Bloom was born in December of 2004 specifically, she perks up because that scans with something else she knows. Bloom's phone is repeatedly going off this whole time with texts from both the group text with the other girls and from Sky, but because nobody is outright saying the words Beatrix killed Callum for dramatic irony purposes, Bloom ignores them and puts her phone on silent. Sky then tries to call her, which Beatrix notices, and she uses a little jolt of electricity to kill the battery in Bloom's phone. Beatrix, which... no, that phone was expensive. Look, we know that Beatrix is, like, super control with her powers. She probably could just, like, ooh, your battery's dead. It's probably static killed it, yeah. Or you a know? ghost who Buzz. knows. A ghost changed your battery. Buzz. Fuck you. <laughs> Ghosts are real. We're in the other world. Ooh. <laughs> uh, Bloom reads in the records that she has that Rosalind was in a place called Aster Dell in December and speculates that's where her parents were from. That grabs Beatrix's attention hardcore. And when Bloom asks if Beatrix can start the map up so she can look for it, Beatrix tells her there's no need. She already knows where Aster Dell is and offers to take Bloom with her. Bloom seems uncomfortable with adding ditching to her list of misdemeanors for the day, which Beatrix finds amusing, and all it takes is a little prodding from Beatrix about how she's the one who's gotten Bloom farther in her search than anyone else, and Bloom agrees to go. I wanna break up, break up, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I wanna see you in the next life, don't wanna make up. <laughs> Because I'm a super special lens B-R-E-A-K. Break up! I'm not even going to try to do a whistle tone. Sky charges into his and Riven's room and demands to know where Beatrix is. Riven genuinely has no clue. Sky tells him that he left Bloom with her. Riven makes a stop talking gesture, but gets cut off when Stella walks out of presumably the bathroom, and starts reaming into Skye about how he's ignored her texts when she needs him. Sky informs her that Bloom is missing, probably in danger or in hiding, because Stella told the whole school she's a changeling. Stella starts flimsily saying that she didn't want to hurt Bloom, and Skye slams her with the harsh truth. Stella claims she doesn't want to be like her mother, but she treats everyone the way that Luna treats her. And he's done. Officially. I've had it. Officially. He leaves the room, and Stella starts to break down. Hey, Brendan? Yes? Remember how this was a fun fairy cartoon from the, from the mid-2000s? <laughs> it's gonna be real weird in about two months when we start talking about season two. Actually, the show could stand to be a fair bit campier. I hope season two does what Sabrina did and just goes off the walls bonkers. We needed to get people invested. Continue to Astrodel. So Bloom is standing on the side of the road when Beatrix pulls up like a bad boyfriend. <laughs> 
in one of the military escort SUVs. Presumably it's not hard to hotwire a car when you have electricity powers. And they're using technology from the first world. When Bloom asks how Beatrix knows how to steal a car, Beatrix very flirtily replies that she knows how to do a lot of things. And I'm like, she's just taking her, she's just taking Bloom into like the woods to fuss, right? Or kill her, or both. This immediately smashes to Aisha, Muse, and Tara telling Delling and Harvey about how Beatrix and Bloom weren't at the assembly because they were in the East Wing. Delling asks why they were down there, and Tara has had enough. So she blurts out that they know Callum was killed by a fairy, and the assembly was to find out who did it, so they can cut the bullshit. Harvey tries to speak up because she did a swear in front of her father, but- Language! No! But Tara rebuffs that he doesn't get to shush her, and she starts to say that if anything happens to Bloom because of his withholding information, it's his fault- but she gets cut off by Silva coming in. And he like he looks like a deer in the headlights because there's three students there. But when Dowling tells him that the the girls know everything, he gives the report that one of the Queen's guards was knocked unconscious and his SUV was stolen. So this guard was had the absolute sh knocked out of him by a sixteen year old. Beatrix tased him, probably. Oh, I like the idea that she just came up behind him and just whacked him on the head with a rock. <laughs> I mean, either or. <laughs> Beatrix has levels in Rogue. It's fine. The other three girls realize exactly what this implies, and Dowling promises that they will find Bloom. Beatrix has driven her and Bloom a few hours away to scenic yet empty Irish mountainside. When Bloom expresses doubt that they're in the right place, since Asterdell was a town, and again, this is an empty mountainside, Beatrix gets on top of a rock nearby and begins channeling lightning. At this point, I'm wondering if Beatrix is going to long live the king Bloom and yeet her off the <laughs> cliff. <laughs> but no. Bloom steps on a rock, and when she looks down, it's actually a half-buried human skull. Beatrix hurls a bolt of lightning that shatters an illusion, and welcome to scenic, destroyed Asterdell. These ruins look weirdly medieval for something that happened 16 years ago, so I guess everyone in the other world lives in, like, Dungeons and Dragons fantasy villages, but with modern technology. I mean, that's my life. That's what I want to do. Honestly, I would be down with that. Beatrix welcomes Bloom to Asterdell. The city that always sleeps, which she said used to be a beautiful place until burned one surrounded the town one winter. By her word, a detachment from Althea decided that destroying the burned ones was more important than the lives of the whole village. So they did a war crime and burned the place to the ground in order to destroy the monsters. And the evidence of said war crime is being implicitly hidden by an illusion cast by Queen Luna. Beatrix reveals that her family was from Asterdell and died in the raising of the town two days before Bloom's first world birthday. Bloom asks if Beatrix thinks her parents died there as well, and Beatrix responds that she knows for a fact they did, as she and Bloom were the only survivors. 
She knows this because she had a memory seared into her newborn mind by Rosalind the same way Bloom did. A scene of total carnage with Dowling, Silva, and Harvey walking through the town like conquerors. Apparently, Rosalind suffered a crisis of conscience and refused to go through with destroying the town, but the other three staged a coup and did it anyway. Bloom tries to rationalize that they wouldn't do anything like that, but Beatrix asks why they'd be participating in a cover-up if they weren't involved. Beatrix is f***ing with Bloom here, right? It seems that she does not have the whole truth. She is being fed a very specific version of events, and it seems that Beatrix also believes that this is the correct version of events. Okay. Okay, so more of this is going to be explained later, right? Yes. Because I I definitely feel like Beatrix is feeding Bloom the version of events that she wants Bloom to know so she can cast doubt onto other people so Beatrix can get what she wants. Which is, in my mind, to just f***ing meld with Rosalind and become a new god. Well, you'll have to stay tuned. Beatrix drives the two of them back to Althea, and explains that after she found out Bloom was a changeling, she started putting things together. Bloom asks Beatrix if she's a changeling as well, but apparently Beatrix was placed in the care of one of Rosalind's close friends instead, while Bloom was sent to the first world. Uh, Bloom is having trouble believing why Dowling would bring her to the other world if she's responsible for the death of Bloom's parents, but Beatrix figures that Dowling hasn't put together that Bloom is probably from Asterdell, and that Bloom should keep things that way. Which, Bloom points out, is exactly what Beatrix would say if she was trying to keep Bloom from comparing notes and coming to her own conclusion. She's having trouble trusting Beatrix, and Beatrix tells Bloom, rather honestly, that she shouldn't be trusted until she's proven herself trustworthy, since that's the way she herself operates. Bloom thinks it's pointless anyhow, since Rosalind is dead, and that's when Beatrix drops the bombshell that Rosalind is, in fact, very much alive and being imprisoned at Althea by Dowling. Any further conversation is stopped by one of the tires of the SUV getting blown out by a pair of arrows. I have a note here that you would think the cars for an SUV used by the Royal Guard would have bulletproof tires, but they're probably magic arrows, so who knows? I don't think they have guns in the other world. Why would you need them when you can throw a fireball at someone? Huh. Beatrix gets out of the car and tries to run, but the asphalt beneath her feet bubbles and turns into hot tar, which slows her down. Hot tar! And Dowling walks on screen and slaps a pair of anti-magic shackles on Beatrix. These things visibly cut into her skin, by the way, and draw blood, which is disturbing and more than a little sinister. I honestly didn't know that. Oh yeah, if you if you check if you go back and look at that scene, they smeared some corn syrup on her wrists. Oh no. That's sticky. Uh, Bloom has no context for what's going on, so she tries to help Beatrix, but she is restrained by Harvey and Silva for her own safety as Beatrix is taken into custody. At this point, Bloom trusts no one. Maybe Beatrix a little bit, but... Bloom gets driven up to Althea, 
where Musa, Aisha, and Tara are waiting for her, and they instantly pull her into a group hug as the professors fetch Beatrix from the back of a separate car. Tara asks Bloom what Beatrix did to her, but Bloom protests that Beatrix isn't a monster, and then Tara lets her know that Beatrix killed Callum. Bloom demands to know who told them that, and when Musa answers that the professors did, Bloom immediately is back on her bullshit about not trusting the faculty and expresses her doubts because, as previously mentioned, she lacks the context. I do like the story idea of not being able to trust the adults that are supposed to be caring for you. This is not one of those cases. Please trust them. Yeah, there's actually pretty concrete evidence, Bloom. It's just that you don't know that, the faculty knows that, but you don't trust them right now. Bloom tells the other girls she'll catch up with them as Sky approaches, immediately apologizing for leaving Bloom with Beatrix. But Bloom says that she's fine and wasn't kidnapped. Which honestly sounds like something that someone was kidnapped with. I'm just <laughs> No. <laughs> Silva calls Sky over to his side and they leave Bloom to collect her thoughts. As the other three girls walk back to the suite, Musa can feel how angry Tara is and tells Tara to just let it out. You're killing me and yourself. For the love of God, say something. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> Tara's furious that her father lied to her face and acted like it was for her own good. And it, she believes that it doesn't matter how you justify it, but you should never lie to the people who matter to you. This is what gets Musa to finally spill the beans about her and Sam, and she braces for impact, but Tara laughs and hugs her, and thanks her for letting her know, even if Musa does have terrible taste in men. <laughs> she then starts teasing Musa about how Sam looks exactly like their dad did when he was a teenager, and their dad started balding at 18, so Musa can have fun with that one. <laughs> Their attention gets grabbed by the sound of wheels on flagstones, and they look over the balcony into the courtyard, where the Solarian guards are wheeling out Stella's luggage. They rush back to the suite, and Stella's room has been stripped bare. There's just the furniture and a couple of hangers left. Stella is in the back of the Rolls Royce with Queen Luna, who remarks that Althea has gone downhill since she was a student, Queen Luna has pulled Stella from her classes and she's going to return to teaching her at home. Stella protests that Luna could have at least let her say goodbye to her friends, which could only be the girl she eats lunch with, or maybe her sweet mates, we don't know. And Luna does the toxic parent thing of telling Stella they're not her friends. In the novel, it's tweaked to probably what was in the original screenplay for this episode and luna's line is they're not your friends because if they were they would be here to say goodbye that at least has some semblance of sense to it right if the opportunity to be there to say goodbye was never offered then it's just an abusive parent thing it was an abusive parent thing regardless well yeah you know what i mean but like i actually would have liked that line better but I also feel like how it would have almost ruined the scene by going too long. You know what I mean? I guess. Luna is a character who is very much maximized by giving her minimal screen time. Yes. 
She's a character who's here to swan in, be the biggest boss in the whole wide world, and leave. <laughs> Beatrix has been thrown into a locked cell in the East Wing for later questioning by Silva and Skye. And, but, real quick, Beatrix actively looks upset. <laughs> Like, this was not going to her plan at all, and she is not happy with it. She actually like, looks a little scared, but I don't know how much of that is acting. Like, obviously, it's all acting, but you know what I mean. She looks like a teenager who got thrown in jail. Anyway, they round into the courtyard after a brief cut. Sky expresses that Silva could have just told him what was going on. Apparently, after the specialist party... Sky was told to get close to Bloom because the faculty wants to know more about her. Silva informed Sky that he was told exactly what he needed to know and that what Sky is doing is important and that he needs to trust Silva. Sky wants to know exactly what is going on and Silva counters that one of the things Sky is at Althea to learn is that sometimes a soldier needs to accept orders without question. Sky's orders, by the way, are to gain Bloom's trust, find out everything he can, including what happened on the field trip with Beatrix, and report back to Silva. Silva reiterates that Sky's loyalty is to him, to Althea, and nobody else. As tense music plays, and Sky is left to absorb that lesson. Dowling is at her desk in her office, and without looking up, she tells somebody not to lurk. Bloom enters the office proper and asks about the shackles that were used on Beatrix. They're called runic limiters, and they prevent a fairy from using magic while they're on, which is a pretty standard uh, thing that you see in settings with magic users. And Bloom calls them barbaric because they cut into Beatrix's skin, which is not invalid. Dowling asks if Bloom is unharmed, and what specifically she and Beatrix spoke about while they were gone. Bloom reiterates that Beatrix didn't hurt her, and because Dowling has so thoroughly broken Bloom's trust, Bloom lies to her face and tells Dowling that she and Beatrix talked about simple kid stuff and that it was just a joyride. Dowling advises her to choose her company more wisely, and Bloom tells her that she can count on it. Once Bloom leaves... Dowling reaches for her phone, and in a move that is framed as weirdly sinister for no reason other than it being the end of the episode, calls Bloom's parents and asks if Bloom has told them anything about the emotional trouble she's been going through since she started at school. And if she does open up to them, please let Dowling know, since she's well used to dealing with that kind of thing. And that's the end of the episode, and I don't think that's as sinister as they're trying to make it. Like, this is just Dowling trying to get more information about what happened from a from a source that Bloom trusts. Her parents. And the way she says it at the end, like, I'm well versed in dealing with these situations. Like, what the fuss? Like she's gonna put a head out on her. <laughs> Episode 5. Bloom fuss dies. Episode 5, The Fairy Mafia. Okay, so that's that's the end of it. Um, I didn't do best worst in MVP. 
this episode feels like it was too full to have one because no one really stood out. Because so much happens so much. This this show happens so much. The only thing I can think of is the best worst is Queen Luna and the MVP is Queen Luna's chin. Like... <laughs> yeah, she has fabulous bone structure. My highlights for this episode, just as a whole, are um, the trip to Asterdell, because it's very powerful imagery. Everything with Queen Luna, because she's the antagonist you love to hate. Uh, Sky breaking up with Stella and calling her out on her bullshit. And Dowling, despite everything, trying to be a good teacher. Dude, I feel like we should have been doing highlights from the beginning for this season. Yeah. Because best, worst, and MVP don't really work. In an hour-long episode format. No, it works way better for the half-hour show. An hour-long episode format filled to the brim with nonsense. I'm going to reiterate my earlier thought that this show really should have had a longer first season. Um... There is easily enough content in this episode alone to fit into two or three. My highlights are gonna be Tara being proud of herself for standing up for herself against Dane. Even if this whole situation's a bit nutty. That hijabi student was really fun. The trip to Astrodale was also really cool. I'm not gonna lie, my favorite part of that whole thing is when they're on the empty mountainside and Bloom, like, steps and looks down and there's just a half-buried skull. Hello, I might be your dad. Um, oh, and Musa coming clean about dating Sam. (laughs) Mr. Skellybones, no. (laughs) Not you two. (laughs) Go away, Mr. Skellybones. (laughs) Okay. This was the fastest recording we've done in f- about a year. All right. Thank you for joining us today on the Magic Wings Clubhouse for this very intense episode of Teenage Television. It is rated TVMA for a reason, folks, and it's gonna keep chugging along that way. So- toot toot. Hey. Beep beep. <laughs> if you liked what you heard today you you can follow the magic winks clubhouse on twitter we're at magic winks pod if you'd like to email us with any i don't know anything say hi we don't care questions um, comments you can email concerns. us at head cannons you can email us at magic clubhouse at gmail.com that is the name of this podcast at gmail.com I, Brendan, am available on Twitter at Magic... Er, nope. At Sonata Waves. <laughs> I mean, yes, I am available find- at Magic Winks Pod, but that's not the point here. <laughs> you can find me, Tess, on Twitter at Magic Winks Pod. At Pocky Slice. That is Pocky, like the delicious Japanese snack. Slice as in slicing cheese with Queen Luna's cheekbones. <laughs> Okay, join us next time for episode five, Wither Into the Truth. Until next time, meeting adjourned. Open your eyes, open your mind. We are the Winks. Winks, if your hand is holding mine, we can find your space and time.
I come ball bearing gifts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to 